Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. You got to be thinking about it in the future. I think your role as a leader, depending on where you are, $10 million business, $50 million business, $500 million business, it'll vary how far out in the future you're thinking, but you need to be thinking out in the future and can we still get there? Whether it's a week, a month, a year, five years, whatever it is, you need to be thinking in the future and can what we're doing today get us to that? If not, what do we need to change? What do we need to add? What do we need to modify to get there? I honestly can't stress enough how important diversity, inclusion, and empowering new voices is within any organization. That's why I'm proud to tell you about this new opportunity with a company I'm grateful to work with. Hire4 is a network that provides full lifecycle talent search and recruiting services customized to fit your needs. Whether you want growth, innovation, change, or diversity, Hire4's team of recruiting experts will match you with the best candidates and fast. From sales to marketing, human resources and more, tell Hireful what you're looking for, then sit back, relax, and wait to connect to top-class talent. Send an email to team at hirefo.co, that's team at h-i-r-e-f-o-r.co to get started. That's team at hirefo.co, and don't forget to tell them that I sent you. Welcome to On Target. My next guest is Josh Wiseman the Chief Revenue Officer at the leading tech recruitment firm, Bets, that's helping cut businesses to scale their sales, marketing, and customer success teams. Josh has more than a decade's worth of experience in leading teams to exceed their revenue targets, and he's also taken several different companies from zero all the way up to $35 million plus in annual recurring revenue. I can't wait to hear his takes on using tech to disrupt industry standards and to hear his thoughts on the best tactics for building a repeatable sales process. So Josh, welcome to On Target. Alex, nice to be here. Thanks for that intro. Absolutely. Now, if you've heard any episodes before, Josh, we love to hear people's elevator pitches on themselves. You pitch your company day in and day out. So if you had 30 seconds or less to give your own elevator pitch for yourself, let us know what that sounds like. You covered it pretty well already. I appreciate the background of the context, but um, yeah, I mean, my name is Josh Weissman, live in New York City, like you mentioned, over a decade of executive revenue leadership experience, been both a CRO and VP of sales at several startups, ranging across a, a large number of industries, fintech, HR tech, transportation. To your point, I've taken a couple companies from scratch as the first go-to-market hire and built them into around 40 plus million dollar ARR businesses. Uh, one of them actually going through an acquisition. We sold that company to Ford Motor Company in the transportation space. And I've also joined a couple startups in that Series B-ish stage. Think of like the five to 10 million in ARR and have come in, helped establish the, the process, the playbooks, the structure, the people, and been able to take those companies really to the next level. And that's, that's what I love doing. So glad to be here. That's a really profound pitch we've heard. You're based in New York. You built some incredible companies. There's so much to to dive right into here. To get us kicked off here, Josh, I'd love to hear more about your story, both personal and professional. Uh, love to hear in that. Some of your biggest lessons, some of your biggest learnings. Just just walk us through Josh's story. I mean, going way back, grew up in the Bay Area in California. 
I went to school in Arizona, University of Arizona. Sports was a big, big part of my life. I played sports all the way through. Uh, when I came back from college, I moved back to the Bay Area and actually spent my first six years of my career not in tech, not in SaaS, actually spent it in the sports world. I worked at the Stanford University, Stanford University in the athletics department where I basically, over the course of six years, worked my way up leading many of the sports events uh, on the ops game management side. Everything around logistics, setup, arrivals of the teams, and fan breakdown. I love that job, funny enough, but you fast forward five years into that six-year stint, my dream was to be an athletic director, actually. Nothing to do with tech, nothing to do with sales, but that last year, I moved to San Francisco, and I was commuting down to Stanford, and for those that uh, live in the Bay Area, they know that 30, 35-mile commute is tough. Traffic sometimes it takes a couple hours to get back and forth. So I saw myself basically miserable over this job, even though I loved it because of the commute. And I figured that a lot of people are in the same boat. And at that same time, now my dear friend who had this idea of starting a commuter transportation company called Chariot that would take people to and from work in San Francisco, kind of think of it as an Uber pool before Uber pool with 15 passenger vehicles all through an app was starting this company. And I would be, I said, hey, you know what? If I'm loving my job but willing to co- quit my job because of my commute, I'm sure there are others. And that's now what started my 12-year run in the tech world. And when I first started at Chariot, that was basically my first time doing anything, right? First time in tech, first time being in a startup, first time running sales and revenue at all. And over the course of four or five years, I built out the entire revenue work from scratch, the B2B, B2C, the sled side in the public sector. We expanded that business 10 plus markets, US, Europe. I was running a 100-person org across sales, marketing, rev ops, partnerships, kind of everything in between. And that's only led me into the success today. And it's that really that first experience in tech and revenue teams, I had, a, I had a lot to learn, right? And when you talk about some of the learnings I had, I think the biggest thing, and I continue to look back, and the reason why when I talk about my journey, I always talk about my Stanford experience, my operations experience, even though it has nothing to do with tech or sales, is because I still think today that had one of the best impacts on my career and what I learned, both in the ops world of solving problems, trying to be creative, understanding like you know my experience with working with all different types of people you can imagine you know working with event staff and ushers and fans and concession people they've come from all works of the life all different ages all over the world and i had to make it work and, you know if you picture this job basically if you're a fan going to a sport event and during your entire time of getting there to going home if there's ever a problem or something that hasn't gone well, it usually would end up on me. It would roll up to me to fix. So that really helped me start managing people, understanding how people really operate and think, and really trying to get the most out of people, which is able how I scaled up into forty plus million dollar AR business at Cherry before we sold that company, and then you know gone on to a couple other companies on the same. But I really think that early stage, even though it had nothing to do with my, you know, experience I'm today was so profound on, on my success. And I think what I've learned is that you got to leverage your previous experience, 
You got to look for mentors when you're coming into a space. You got to be thinking about how to prioritize. You kind of got to fake it a little bit until you make it, you know, working your, your butt off and then always be proactive and communicate, you know, with your team. So uh, that was a lot there, but I always like to start with kind of my background and what got me into this world and how I've been able to, you know, so appreciative of what I learned even before the tech world to help me in my career. It's a really, really fascinating story, Josh. I, I love the the diversity of thought and the diversity of perspective because of all of those experiences that you've had. One thing that I'm curious about is actually what it is that you're trying to either prove to yourself or prove to the world throughout this whole journey, right? You've been doing this for quite some time. You've had repeatable success over quite a sustained period. So what are you trying to prove to either yourself or the world? It's a great, great question. Actually, one of the questions I always ask basically anyone I interview is what what motivates you, right? Was it family growing up? Is it maybe not going to an Ivy League school and trying to prove people wrong? For me, it, it's twofold. One, it's when I get passionate about something, I always try to be perfect or get as close as I can. And that came, you know, certain subjects I was really passionate about, I would do great in at school. Certain ones I was not very passionate about, I wasn't that motivated and that excited. So for me, I quite really learned I needed to really be motivated about the space that I was in. And my career has gone into a number of industries. I was in the transportation space because I hated my commute. I moved into the financial space because after the acquisition of the company I was at, I saw how little people truly knew about their finances and their equity and how that would work. And I wanted to help solve that problem. And then over that, you gave the introduction on vets in the recruiting world. I saw the challenges that came with people having to scale up companies and the, the misses that would go and the expensiveness that would come into that. So for me, it's what I prove and what I try to make sure is I have to be just fully in, fully bought into what I'm trying to do and be very motivated and passionate about that. And then from there, it's not necessarily proving anything to anybody. It's more, I really like to pick things that I think could help a lot of people. And I think what motivates me is hearing people's and being really close to customers early on at any one of those companies, hearing the pain points and challenges and hearing that what I am doing and my company is actually solving, right? This isn't just sales for a commission check or to make more money. This is actually fix these problems. And I love that. And that's what makes me work an extra hour or two during a day. That's what gets my team motivated is truly, and I know it sounds cliche, but it truly is hearing these customer stories about how we've been able to solve it, whether it's a commute, whether it's their finances, whether it's been able to get a job they didn't think they could get, or for companies to be able to get their job, get employees, anything they were able to get, I really think we're making a profound impact. And I think that's the thing that what's motivated me to this court still. And I'll continue to do it. I'll continue to go back to these stage companies when I find the right type of space that just motivates me to my core. I love when people are passionate about what they do, because when, when you have passion, it's really like having an infinite fuel source, you know, and we talk so often about burnout within our space and challenge. And I think one of the contributing factors is sometimes when you're just turning up to do your job because it's your job. You know, when you speak there about that passion for helping customers solve great outcomes or as a leader, just being really bought into helping your team achieve their personal and professional goals, this is fuel, you know, and you get up every day and it really helps you to have that bit between your teeth to go out there and make a difference. So, now I'm no longer surprised as to why you've been doing this as long as you you have been. 
and I'm sure much more to come. No, well said. I think that you're absolutely right. Whether it's your customers, whether it's your team, these stories and the impact that you have. And, and I can say all the same things about my teams over the years too, right? I have so many people that I hired 12 plus years ago that are now, you know, C-suite VPs of companies and love hearing the success that they've had just as much as these companies. And that's what motivates me, right? It's not just, hey, here's a paycheck or do your job just because you're supposed to do your job. It's these other outside factors that really motivate me. And it's like, you know what? To a certain extent, I almost would do it for free, right? And I, I feel like I've been able to, it seems like similar to what you're doing, you know, with this program, et cetera. But I love helping so many people out along the way and don't ask for retainers or monthly, you know, stipends, thing like that. People helped me early in my career with all different types of things. I told you I had almost no experience in this world. I read a lot of books, but I also got a lot of people to help me just because they wanted to. And I feel like I've always tried to pay that forward and we'll do the same thing for people. So yeah, definitely motivating. I love it. I'm glad we share that spirit. Now, Josh, I want to transition slightly into some some more tactical things. I think our listeners love to uh, you know get into the brain of someone like yourself and learn a bit more about how you've been able to build and sustain uh, go-to-market operations that have taken you to you know north of that $35 million mark multiple times over. So please just talk to us about some of the core pillars that have really underpinned the building and the sustaining and, and really scaling best-in-class sales teams and broader go-to-market operations. I mean, I think the first one is hiring the right people. All right, you can only do so much yourself and you really want to make sure you have the right people around you. And obviously why I'm in this space now and very passionate about being able to bring in the right people, who is the right stage, who's the right employee for hire number 10 versus hire number 200 versus hire 1000. I think those really vary. Uh, you know, I look not just for skill and obviously the attitude, I think those things are, are givens, but certain core behaviors, especially in early stage companies, you're always thinking about people that can, you know, learn fast, they have the right effort, but also, you know, have the right tenacity, have the right process improvement mentality of never settling for status quo, really thinking analytical, being accountable, managing up, I think is a core aspect. You know, from there, it's all about training. Right, not just uh, onboarding, but the ongoing training, and how are you bringing in training on a regular basis? And for me, what I've seen is, is you, and I'm sure so many other people have seen it, is you move fast. What you might be doing this week is different than next week or the week after. How do you make sure your entire team is on board, understanding that, understanding the process, so they're not leaving anyone behind? I think challenging the status quo is something that that I always make sure is key with the people that I work with. And it's okay to make mistakes, right? And I think that's everyone strives for perfection, sometimes too nervous to go outside these guardrails of your role. And I think it's, it's, I love supporting and bringing in the right type of culture and right that pillar of building. Hey, there is no straight line. Let's think about this together and, and be able to leverage the right way to go about it. I think from the leadership side, it's not only giving clear guidelines uh, you know, obviously from a metric perspective, which is crucial, but I, it was, it's always been very clear and important to me around the right feedback. And I think, you know, people sometimes shy away from tough conversations or not giving, you know, quote unquote, the, the negative feedback. The conversations I have around those people, it just always, always in the end will work out, right? Like I think in the key, if you can give the right feedback to the right people, you're always trying to continue to grow 
And people appreciate that. And I've always really strived to make sure there's a clear communication. I expect I'm going to have clear communication with you. I'll always be open and honest. You'll never have to question what I'm thinking. You'll never have to be thinking, oh, am I doing a good job or not? And I expect the same in return. And I think that type of communication throughout is really, really key, right? There's no, hey, if I'm your leader or I'm your manager, you know, I might be nervous to go to you with some information because of this circle communication that's always been very clear. And I think the last, I would say, pillar is as far as leadership, you got to be thinking about it in the future. I think your role as a leader, depending on where you are, $10 million business, $50 million business, $500 million business, it'll vary how far out in the future you're thinking, but you need to be thinking out in the future and can we still get there? Whether it's a week, a month, a year, five years, whatever it is, you need to be thinking in the future and can what we're doing today get us to that? If not, what do we need to change? What do we need to add? What do we need to modify to get there? So a couple of the key things that I always think about, especially as I scale teams. I'd love to double tap on a couple of these points here, Josh. The first one is culture. We hear this word culture a lot. And I'd love to know for Josh, if you could define great culture and then also talk to us about how you can sustain that great culture at scale. Not easy. I think that's the thing. It's always, what is that secret sauce? I'll answer your second question first, so to speak, and maybe a little bit of a different way, which is, it's still going back to how I think about hiring, especially as you scale. You talk about culture, culture as you scale. I think the number one thing is that when companies, and it's changed the climate because of where we're at today in today's world, it's changed a little bit with scaling at all costs and hiring all these people all quickly has changed, I think actually for the better, people a little bit more thoughtful about how we're scaling and what we're thinking about. But that being said, as you scale, and you hire, you know, 20 great people, all A plus players, very methodical. And then all of a sudden, you know, you raise that round or you have to scale to that next level and you bring on 60 more people, your standards go down. It just like, hey, we need people, we need butts and seats, so to speak. Let's going. And I always strive for that mentality of that next person should actually be better in that role than previously. And I think you're bringing on people that are even more talented, that are even more passionate, that are even more skilled potentially in their role, continues to level up your team and your and that culture overall and the standpoint of what we're trying to do. I think when teams sacrifice talent for speed, all of a sudden you bring in B or C players and those A players can relax a little bit, right? They're like, wait, wait, versus, wow, I am the d- director of this role or whatever. I'm glad I joined a year ago. If I joined now, I don't know if I'd still if I would still be in this role, right? And that's what motivates kids to be excited, which then ties into culture, right? Especially as you scale. I think the key, and I mentioned a couple of them, but once you have the the, the mentality and attitude across everyone of, hey, we are striving for success, we are continuing to get better, we are not just gonna go through the motions, which is why I mentioned that first part. I think from there, it's all about how you communicate. Obviously, number one. I think that's the biggest thing I've always pushed, especially after my, you know, my first couple years or so in leadership, where maybe I held a little bit more things to chess. I wasn't as clear about certain numbers. I wouldn't be as clear about board conversations because I didn't necessarily think that that should be around everyone. I quickly realized that everyone wanted to hear what was going on and the information and not just the good, but also wanted to hear what we need to improve on, right? Every company has things they need to improve on. I think the more communication, especially as a leader, that you can share with your entire team around that, 
you're able to breed the right type of culture around that type of success, number one. And I think from there, you're able to have much more, let's say, deeper conversations with people about what they want to do in their career too, right? In the standpoint of like, this is not shying away from tough conversations. This is not, oh, wow, I didn't know, you know, Susie or Billy wanted to leave and they just let me, they just put in their two weeks notice. I've really never been proud about that. Never had that happen because I've always been very clear about where people are at, how they're feeling, what they want to do in their career, where they want to go. And if I help them get there, that's motivation to stay. So part of the culture standpoint is also making sure I truly understand what this individual wants to do over the course of the next couple of years and how can they get there? Where are they at today? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What do they want to get to over the next couple of years? And how can I help them get there? And I think some of the most success, the, the best success stories that I have that help culture is watching people from within rise up the ranks pretty quickly, right? We are not at a 50,000 employee company where you're at level one for four years and you get to level two and then level three. Like there are ways you can get promoted pretty quickly and see success within. And I think if people see that, they're excited and motivated to do that. And then you could talk about the communication internally. You could talk about communication across the, the across departments. You could talk about other things. But I think if you're really talking about how do you bring culture really within your teams, I think it all revolves around that motivation and communication perspective. Yeah, I, I love this discussion. I'd, I'd love to also add my two cents on this culture piece because part of it is I found this incredibly important as a leader to really take the time to work through your own leadership principles. So who you are as a leader, what you stand for, your expectations, and start to get people rallied around that. I've seen a, a mistake, I would say, from a number of first-time leaders, certainly where they kind of go into roles and, and try and just figure things out as they go. And when you haven't taken that time to work through what's your mission, what's your vision, what are your set of standards, your principles, it makes it quite hard to shape and define culture because you don't really have an identity because you haven't figured it out yourself. So I'd also encourage uh, you know anyone who's listening to also take some time to really, really establish your own set of core principles and then leverage that alongside some of the tips that Josh has mentioned to really come 360 to build and sustain culture, uh, especially as your company continues to grow and, and, and scale over time. That's a great point, Alex. I think that's a key thing that I maybe didn't do early enough when I was coming into certain companies in a leadership role. I would say, hey, let me dive in. Let me see how you're operating. Let me see how things work. Let me see how the process is. You know, I don't want to come in and immediately change things on day one, which I think to a certain extent is good, right? You don't want to just come in and completely rip everything up. But to your exact point, that doesn't change the way that you need to handle the culture part of it, right? Here are my principles. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's the way that I expect ourselves to have this type of standard when it comes to professionalism or attitude or performance across the board. And now on day one, when I get the no teams, I don't say, hey, you know, here's the new process of which we're going to go thinking about as a company. But I do talk about here are the core things that I look for, what I need, what I feel like success is, what I feel like will really help us continue to grow as an organization. And that's what I'll be looking for in all of you, right? In the way how we will do that or the steps of the actual process or strategy or principles or playbooks is going to be modified over the course of the next several months, et cetera. But on day one, at least set the boundary for this is the way that we need to operate. This is the standard that we need to have because those when you come in and even if you don't do that in the first call, 
it's very hard to go back and change that, right? You've kind of let some of these things slide and all of a sudden the standard drops versus, hey, day one, this is the standard that I'm going to set. It's so, so true. You know, it's that goes back to first impressions in a way, right? Really, really difficult to change and you turn that that first set of standards that you set at any company. So great point, great point. I did want to also pick up on this point around communication because I can I can see that this uh, transparency piece is really important to you, Josh. Absolutely buy into the reasons behind that. I'd like to just explore having difficult conversations because I think a lot of what we've covered so far all makes a ton of sense when you, you you know you're having the rosier conversations or the positive ones but you know a big part of our role is also performance management and sometimes the need to have slightly more challenging conversations especially when expectations aren't being met so love to just get your thoughts around how you tackle some of those slightly more challenging conversations or where you need to actually be more thoughtful around performance management i try to address these pretty immediately too Meaning like I don't wait to the next biweekly one-on-one or the one-on-one and then address this, hey, you know, what you did two weeks ago, I think we need to change this or we need to modify this or I didn't like the way you handled this. Like just, hey, let's jump on a 15-minute call. Let's meet in person 15 minutes, whatever it is, and let's talk through these types of things. I think number one thing is address it immediately. I think the second thing is ask that individual how they think they're doing, how they think that call went, how they think that process is going, right? Number one is just truly understand where the baseline is at from that individual, right? I think too often you go, hey, you know what? You did X great, but you did these 14 things wrong. Maybe they already know that they did six things wrong and they're not looking for you to necessarily say, I did these six things wrong versus like, I would love, Josh, I would love your help on how to improve on these six things so I know I didn't do these things great. So before you start really critiquing or talking and driving in, understand the lay of the land and understand how they're thinking about a certain thing. And oftentimes, they're going to be pretty on, right? There's going to be a couple of things that probably they didn't realize, they didn't notice, that they don't really understand. But I think they, most people generally have a good understanding, especially if you drive that transparency going forward. They know where they're standing when it comes to performance or culture, ads, whatever it is across the board. And then from there, it's addressing it, right? And I think it's just it's being very clear. Once, whether it's something they've already addressed or something new that I they didn't necessarily notice that now I'm bringing up, I think it's really crucial just to be transparent and be honest about it and be clear with examples, right? And really be concrete about, hey, this is the challenge. Here's something, you know, let's take a sales call, right? Something like that, right? Here is something that did not go right in this call, right? Here are the things that went well. We addressed that. We talked about this. Here are some of the things that I really think that can be improved on. And I think the main thing there is... Sometimes people get overwhelmed by the feedback and the critique. Like, don't give 82 things and say you need to prove 82 things. Really pick one or two things and let's work on it together over the next couple of weeks, right? I'm not asking you to change 18 things because, you know, they're going to walk away from that call going, wow, I really suck. Or I I might get fired. I'm going to leave, right? That type of thing. No, I'm glad that Josh saw several things I did well. And I think I'm glad that Josh saw a couple of things that I can prove on. And I'm excited about working with him or working with other leaders or other teammates to improve those one or two things over the next couple of weeks. I don't think that's crazy. I don't think that's too much. I don't think it's overwhelming. I'm glad that I want to work on one or two things. And I think really focusing in on one or two things, let's focus on that. In a couple of weeks, you could address other things. That's totally fine. 
but let's get better at each one of these things rather than being in a position where here are the 42 things that you need to better. And they're like, what do I even start? Right. Your job as a leader is to prioritize. So you prioritize that list by giving your feedback in the right way of giving those things and be great. I would always rather someone be great at 10 things than be average at 30 things. So I, I work to strive to be great. Let's be great and let's continue to add on to that list, even if it's not as extensive as being average at 60 things. It's incredible how sometimes the small things can make such a huge difference. You know, your point around actually, you know, asking the question of what, what do you think about that call just as a starting point versus, you know, diving straight into the feedback. They seem like small adjustments, but they compound and make such a huge difference to actually how that seller feels. So really important, all of these, you know, slightly more marginal gains in a way that you've described, because they all add up and make a big difference. I've even found when being in those types of scenarios, sometimes in a sensitive way, almost asking for permission to be able to share some thoughts, always starting with the positive and then saying, look, are you happy if I share a couple of things that I think could be interesting for you to consider next time? And I've always found that that's been a really powerful way to frame it because it allows the other person to feel in a way that they have a semblance of control or that they've been able to open the doors up. And I find that then then often even more receptive to that feedback or to that coaching. So again, another small addition, but alongside both of the things that we've spoken about, I think it can make a massive difference for leaders out there. Yeah, well said for sure. Getting that buy-in uh, is, is, is crucial. Absolutely. Now, Josh, I'd love to us to move forward into the next segment where we talk a bit more about operational excellence as I describe it. So love to learn more about really how you set up your week for success. Big question. Big question overall. I told you about the ops background that I had even before getting on the revenue side. I very, very structured when it comes to my calendar, the way we think about it, our team meetings, our exec meetings. And for me, it starts usually Sunday night. You can do it Friday at the end of the week, whenever you want. But for me, it's always a Sunday night and it's kind of a time to, to process what my week looks like ahead, right? And I look at my calendar and sure, you know, I have all my ducks in a row. My schedule is tight and set up for success. I'm prepared for team meetings I'm running. I'm prepared for the exec meetings I'm in. Is it a board meeting? I'm prepared for all my one-on-ones. I'm prepared really for everything. I know that my focus is going to be this this week and structured in. And the reason being is addition to the things that come up, it can always add on to what's already established from Sunday night, right? To your point, is there a piece of item that I want to add to a one-on-one on a team and on a team leader's perspective or on an IC perspective? I can add it directly there. It becomes really easy to continue down that rather than just starting from scratch middle of the way. And I think the key is when you're asking the question, just like, how do you set your week up for success? It's got to be organized. It's got to be structured in the standpoint of like, hey, when do I have my one-on-ones? Is that at the beginning of the week? Is that at the end of the week? When do I have my team meetings? When is it best, right? It's not just always, hey, I've always done team meetings Mondays, so let's do Monday. Right? What makes sense for the business, the stage that you're at, and what, what works, right? Can you get feedback from people? And I think it's really crucial to set it up. But that being said, one of the things that I still do to this day on a weekly basis is I actually set out time buckets in the standpoint of, of the week, you know, and put this in basically to a, a pie chart at the beginning of the week. I'm going to spend 30% of my time on team meetings, 100%, 20% of my time on X. And 
you know, 5% of my time on heads down working on this thing. And really every week, the following Sunday, I look back and I evaluate, was I on track or was I not? And if I wasn't, why not? Was that okay? You know, things happen so quickly and change so often that it's okay if, you know, you have to throw away something for the day to get something done, right? A multi-million dollar deal comes up, all hands on deck, let's work on this together. But that being said, you still got to come to the point of being able to reflect on it in the week. And at the end of the week, if you did not do, if you didn't have the changes that you expected and you not feel like you didn't get what you need to get done, you got to make some changes. So for me, I still on a weekly basis, I really put my time into evaluating where my time should be and then reflecting on that. And if things need to change, they change and really make sure that it's there so I can get everything done. Because in the end, prioritization is the number one most important thing. You're going to be pulled into 50 different places all at once. How do you make sure that you're prioritizing your time? Because in the end, that's you could say, oh, I'm going to work a couple extra hours here and there, but in the end, there's there's nothing more valuable than time. So cruelly making sure that you have your right structure in your time and you're evaluating and making sure it's there because otherwise, all of a sudden, you're just going to hit the lowest hanging fruits and the lowest hanging, hanging items, the ones actually most important. That word prioritization is really everything completely with you on that one. I'd love for you to cast your mind back, Josh, to Joshua's first time manager, all those years ago, right? And I'm sure there were some time sucks or time drains uh, that you were a little bit more susceptible then than you are today. So just walk us through some of the primary time drains that you see, especially for early in career leaders that you've now learned from and been able to change as your careers evolved. It definitely varies based on where your priorities are, right? In the end, what people usually drain their time on is just what they're most comfortable with or what they're best at, right? Sales leaders that were amazing, you know, sales AEs maybe spend too much time actually in the deals, in the weeds, working on something with one person on a big deal and forgetting the other eight people on their team or the process to get to this next level. So I think for me, it was doing the things that I knew I was good at, that I was comfortable at early on that might not necessarily be what's best for the business just because it was easier for me, all right? Was it the harder conversations with the process? Was it harder conversations with individuals versus just like, hey, I know I can close these deals, so let me just jump in here and help a little bit more and spend more time on this, right? That's not what your job is as a sales leader. Your job is to produce X number of people, X number of results, X number of success down the road. That's the key, right? It's not just to close one deal. So in the end, my big thing, if I was to tell somebody it's, it's, where do you feel like you're best at? It's probably where you're spending too much time just because, frankly, you're used to it, you're comfortable with it. And I, I always try to reflect on where's the at, where are the things I think are most important to the business, not what I can do, not what's best. And I ask this whether it's, you know, I ask this all the time and I think about this all the time on a weekly basis or monthly basis is what are the three or four most important things for this team, this, this, this company, the next quarter, whatever it is, what are those things? And if I'm not spending a majority of my time on that, that's not good. And solving those directly, right? Not just closing one deal, not just closing this. What is it? Is it building a better process? Is it building better structure? Is it building, you know, hiring? Is it thinking about how to scale? Is it changing process? Is it working with marketing? Like, what are the different things? Otherwise, you get too in the weeds about what you're comfortable with. And that's usually where your dream is at. And I think everyone can relate to hey, I'm good at this, so let me just get some things done. And I close this deal 
and you're thinking you're you know on top of the world, even though that one deal probably could have been 30 deals if you did actually what you're supposed to do, which is work with the entire team, work with the process, build a better overall journey. You make this point on working with the entire team, and it, it makes me think about also the importance of effective delegation, which is sometimes something that I think goes a bit under the radar. Uh, you know, I remember being in positions, you know, also being a bit of a bit of a perfectionist at times, not wanting to let go of anything, right? Wanted to make sure my eye was across everything and I got to cross-reference every single thing. And that in itself is a time drain. If you, to your point earlier, have hired the right people and trust that the business has also hired the right type of talent ac across different departments, uh, you've got to be able to delegate effectively and sometimes say, hey, look, can you handhold this or can you step in on this or can you walk through this piece? And all of a sudden you start to become a true CEO of your own you know, department or team or region. And when you're thinking about things in that way, you can become far more effective. You can prioritize more effectively and you can make sure that your time is best spent where you're going to get the best return on, on, on every second of time. Because I'm completely with you that it is the most precious asset and how we choose to distribute it is so important, especially because the more time you often invest in something, that also drains the energy tank. And we've got to be considerate of making sure that we have a good amount of energy to keep driving the activities that move the dial. So yeah, love this topic holistically. It's so well said. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I always, you know, I grew up always thinking about how to delegate and how to think about, because I knew that was always the problem. What's, you know, Steve Jobs line, I think, is you, you hire the people and then get get out of the way, basically. It's so true, right? I think you got to hire the right people and you got to put in the right trust and the right mentality. And then you got to be able to put in what you're expecting. Right? I think that's the key. That unfortunately, you're a leader and you're like, well, this person isn't doing what I'm asking them to or what, you know, I feel like they're missing the mark. Tell them what you want, right? Every Friday, I expect X, Y, and Z. Let's review this over the course of the week. Or let's review this on Friday. This is what I want to see. And I think as you grow as a leader, one of the biggest things is, is being able to manage and lead a team of, this is what I expect from you. This is the way I like to see it. This is the way I want to see it. And it's okay to have your own style, especially if you're thinking about it in multiple you know, number of different avenues and departments. This is the way that it's got to be. Can you meet me and work on this way? Let's do it this, this type of way, right? How you get there as a leader, you want to make sure everyone does it, so to speak, their way and everyone's different and you want to compromise them. But hey, as a team, as a company, as whatever, this is what we do. This is how we think about it. And I think with that motivation and that push to say, hey, go run this, go do this, like, you'll get a lot more out of the team. Yeah, feeds into the principle discussion that we had earlier as well. So love it. Um, I mentioned in my last response the word energy. And Josh, as we mentioned, you've been doing this for quite some time. Love to understand, you know, how do you stay healthy and energized throughout the working week uh, to be able to sustain for as long as you have? That is probably the toughest one. When I started to really get in it, you know, I gave my answers earlier around the fact that I'm really motivated behind what I do and my work. And I was the type of person that worked, you know, 18 hours a day, six, seven days a week and not because, so to speak, someone was telling me because I was really excited and I loved what I was doing. And I quickly realized everything else was suffering and that's not sustainable in the long run, right? I got quickly burnt out and that wasn't the right part. So 
very similar to what I do, and this has changed now over the last couple of years, but very similar to what I do with my work week when I prioritize and almost in my head and I write this down, here's my pie chart of my buckets of time of what I'm spending. I actually think about that as my entire week, right? Outside of work too, right? And I think about how much of that pie chart should we work this week? How much of it should be focusing on friendships or a spouse or health, right? Whether it's mental or physical health and going to the right appointments. Maybe for some people it's, you know, religion, whatever it may be. What are my pie items that I want to be focusing in on? And how much time should I be spending on that for this week? And, you know, there's, especially in today's world, there's always this work-life balance, whatever it is. I've been saying for a while, I always think about this, you know, work-life harmony. One week, frankly, it it could be 100% of work, right? Maybe I I don't have, it's a big presentation. I, I, you know what, hey, wife or girlfriend, whoever it is, I need to spend a little bit more time on this or friends, unfortunately, I can't do this or let me push out some, that's okay for a week or two here and there, but that can't be the ongoing thing, right? So what does it look like? Where am I looking at it? And I always reflect on that actually on a weekly, I do it monthly on a monthly basis. How much of my time is being spent on work? How much of it is spent on friendships or relationships or health or whatever it may be? That's something that I always look at and I reflect on on a monthly basis and make sure that I'm doing what I set out to do at the beginning of that month. This is what I expected. Otherwise, I just got to the point where I was almost 100% focused on work. I would lose out on friendships, lose out on time, lose out on these things. Uh, I felt like I was doing everything I could at work, which was great, but you realize that's not your entire life. Uh, And you quickly realize if you're only doing that, it's going to, there's going to be a missing out on a lot of things. And I think that mistake, especially as I grew really quickly in my first, you know, tech career, all the way up running hundred plus people all over the country, all over the world. I thought that was the only priority and the only thing that made me happy. And you realize when you leave that company, Though you know, a lot of those things are no longer there, but your friends, your health, your spouse, all that's still there. So you got to make sure that you don't have, you know, years or weeks or months, whatever it is, of not focusing on those types of things. So long answer to say, same mentality. I write it down. I still old school. I write these things down on a monthly basis of where I want to be spending my time and making sure that I focus on that um, to hit every all of the things that I think are important inside of work and outside of work which I've learned pretty quickly, makes it makes my work better. Right? You can't sustainable go 18 hours a day, six, seven days a week in short bursts, maybe, but you're not spending years and years of your time doing that. Even you know friendships and things aside, your work is going to suffer. Uh, and you have to make sure you set the right boundaries and the right structure and the right communication. And you also got to lead with your team. And I, I, I share this with my team all the time because a lot of people, especially you know, early in their career, walk, I saw them getting in the same challenges that I got into. It's not going to work. And you really want to set that boundary and set that expectation. And it's the communication. And that's where like, hey, you know what, Josh, I need a, I'm, I'm glad that especially, you know, post-COVID world, a lot more remote. Your job is to get your job done, right? You don't need to tell me when you have a doctor's, you know, you don't need to ask for permission to go to a doctor's appointment or do these things, right? Get your job done whenever you can, you know, make sure people are aware when you're in and out of seat, so to speak, but, you know, live your life and just make sure you get your job done on the hours you are working. That's all that matters, right? So I think it's important rather than everyone's in the office all day, every day. I don't care what you're doing. You're going to work 80 hours a week. I think those days are over and I think that's good. I often say that you can't sprint a marathon, uh, but if you look at uh, a lot of long distance runners, they, they run at a hard pace 
over an extended period, but it's impossible to sprint that amount of time, right? But to your point, one of the things I, I took away from that is just the fluidity, because it is important to recognize that there are sometimes weeks or days or hours where it is full throttle, because that's the the world that we've chosen, right? We, we earn really good money. Uh, we're in a space that is well paid compared to a lot of other sectors out there. And part of that trade-off is that the demands and the pressures are higher, right, than a lot of other roles. And I think if you're completely blinkered to that, you could get blindsided because it's it's not an easy career path. But what I've often encouraged people to do is to create a personal operating rhythm for yourself. So, you know, for example, for myself, every week I get a massage, every day I meditate, uh, six days a week I do some form of uh, exercise. That might be a walk or it might be the actual gym. And I've literally a bit like you written this down as my personal operating rhythm. And I, I don't relent on it. It's the same thing every week. And I found that um, after burning out in 2017, I've never burnt out since. So I, I, I did run into the wall, but never have since because that operating rhythm, uh, it almost combined some science and some emotional reality to uh, make sure that actually energy sustains when you're passionate about what you do, that helps too. But it's also, as I say, not trying to sprint a marathon, right? Go at a good, hard pace, check in with yourself, slow down when you need to, and pick back, pick up the pace when you need to. You know, it's going to be a long run, to your point of a marathon, right? And you can't, to your point, sprint the entire way. So you know it's going to be that long. Prepare for it. Make sure you're setting the right expectations and continue to grow. Last few questions for you, Josh. Um, in our last segment here, I like to call it the close. It's really just to unpack a bit more about some of the principles that you have or thoughts, whether they're frameworks, qualification, criteria, whatever, as it relates to just core principles around winning business. Talk to us about some of the things that have underpinned your career or your teams. The first one is, is KYC, right? Know your customer. I think that's number one. That includes the company, the buyer, everyone involved in the deal, be, you know, to a T perfect when it comes to everything that makes them tick, right? In the end, you know, we continue to live in a, you know, continue to AI world, tech world, things are only getting even more advanced when it comes to that. In the end, still to this day, people oftentimes mostly not where we're going to buy from people. Uh, you got to have everything else. But in the end, you being a person, you being relatable, you being able to solve their pain points and their challenges and being able to truly understand what that looks like is number one, right? I can have somebody, you know, AI write the greatest one minute speech of all time. In the end, I got to have, what are the right questions for me to truly understand how you tick, how you operate, how you work, how we can solve this problem and go from there. So I think it's, that's the number one thing when I talk about, when you ask about self thinking about how to win business and how to scale got to know the customer and understand how that works and then understand how your team can help and support, right? And I think especially as you go maybe up market, bigger segments, bigger deals, longer sales cycles, you got to have who is everyone on their team? Who is everyone on your team? I tell my team, like, you're the, whatever analogy you want to think of, I'll take the sports analogy of like, you're the, the offensive coordinator or the coach or whatever it may be, your talent who's the quarterback, who's the running back, who's the receiver on your team, right? I want customer success to come in and do this. I want this from my ops team. I want this from our, 
you are the conductor of how this process is going to work A through Z. And in the end, if you can control that and help make sure that your customer understands that all the way through, you're setting a pretty good journey to make sure that they go, hey, you know what? This person gets me. I like this person. I like what they do. I can bet on them. I could be successful with it. I'm going to continue on. So in the end, I think it's you can never worry about, you know, there's so many things in your head. Can I just know my customer, know everything about them? Know your customer can never, ever go out of fashion. It can absolutely never go out of fashion. So it's so simple and so basic. It, uh, you know, some people want flashy answers. And I tell people in sales, that's, that's number one. And it'll always be number one. Absolutely. Now, Josh, in your mind, think of a customer, a deal, anything that comes to mind over your, your, your tenured career. And just walk us through a, a key takeaway it can be absolutely anything, but something that you want to call out that stands out from a notable deal or customer that we can all learn from. I feel like what you asked, I feel like people either go with their first deal or their biggest deals. Uh, when you talk to people, and for me, I, I think that's no different. I'm thinking of my first my first deals at a couple of the companies. You know, when I at Chariot Transportation Company, when I first started, we were getting into the B2B space. Didn't even necessarily know how to think about selling this. It just kind of was doing on the fly. And we sold to a company in Glassdoor. That was our very first customer. The buyer and I are actually still friends to this day, 12, 13 years later, uh, and talk on a, at least a quarterly basis. Same thing when I was at a company called Northstar. Zoom was our first customer. Again, it's you know still friends to this day. Your customers want to be successful in their own career too, right? And how can I make them look great? How can I get them promoted? You know, at early stage companies, you know, when I was trying to there was no, hey, you know, especially you need to get bigger. Hey, show me a couple other companies that are like us that are customers. Didn't have anybody, right? Especially in the early days, or maybe it's a different segment or you're going to a different stage. For me, it was, there's always going to be a risk for a customer to pick the incumbent in the stage or the bigger company, no matter how your stager is, right? And I think if you're able to build that, going back to my last point, if you're able to build that relationship, build that trust, Get them to the point where they actually believe you won't let them down. They will be your champion. And not just your champion to close them on the sales deal, be your champion post-sales. And you know, I think the biggest takeaway is because I spent so much time and getting to know these people and you know, even post a sale, post a commission, post all this stuff, gave the same performance, same structure same time to these people, even though they knew that I wasn't, so to speak, getting anything more out of it monetarily wise, I think that helped their relationship grow. They all became the biggest referral channels afterwards, whether it was referring their friends, whether it was me going to a different company and then having them say, yeah, I'll be the first one to sign up. I don't even know what you do, Josh, but let's do it. I trust you. Right? So in the end, it was its trust. And I think if you can build those relationships, so I think sometimes sales gets too transactional, too about the close, about the commission. And then let me hand it off to a customer success person and, you know, thanks a lot and move on. You, it's a very short sighted way of looking at it, right? Even if you do make your commission, even anything like that, this person is your biggest tool, your asset for everything in the future, whether it's referrals, whether it's friendship, whether it's going to another company and then being a customer. You can keep customers and you can keep people for a long time. I think the number one thing I would say that I've learned in sales is you have to keep those relationships and really continue to keep that performance all the way through. And in the, whatever way you think of it, 
whether it's in memories, in time, in new deals, they'll reward you, you know, tenfold for it. I think there's so much to be said in actually caring and truly being an investor in making a difference for your customer. And that's really what I heard through everything you just described there, Josh, you know, you, you cared, you know, you, you genuinely had real interest in making a difference. And the fact that you've sustained some form of friendship all of this time is uh, just great validation of, you know, who you are at your core and the type of difference that you sought to make for your customers. So I absolutely love that. As we wrap now, Josh, final question for you. Of course, this is a podcast for sales leaders. So I'd love to to hear from you, Josh, what your single best piece of advice would be to any sales leader that's out there right now that wants to up-level in their career. I'll answer it in two ways. The first part is, like, are you in the right position in the right stage and the right aspect? And, you know, I'll, I'll quote the, you know, Steve Jobs again, something when I read his books and his things, some of that was always a figure I looked out to from a professional standpoint was, I think he said something like, you know, if today were your last day is what you're doing today, are you happy with what you're doing today? And he said, you know, whenever the answer had been no for not one day, of course, but several days in a row, he needed to make a change. Uh, and I think that was something that's always stuck with me. Uh, it's not as big as, oh my God, I need to quit and go find another job or I need another career. It's just, what is that small change uh, that I can tweak? And why am I not happy about today, right? What is not what is not going right? What is the, and I think that's the reflection. So, so often you get an autopilot and just go through the days and incrementally get more frustrated or get more disappointed about what's going on or day, like, reset and think about why, right? What, why am, why are you not happy with what you're doing today? And take a reflection on that. It's like, that's number one. The specific best advice for anyone up-leveling their career is still to this day, it's funny. I, I, one of my, the first leader CEOs that I worked for said like, you know, the best way to grow in your career is solve my problems, right? And I'm glad that you're doing your job, but the way that you think about the way that you get promoted is think about what my three or four biggest priorities are and solve those. Whether that's in tandem with what you're doing, in addition to what you're doing, if you are solving your boss's problems, that's how you continue to up-level your career and you scale and you grow and what you're doing. You get promoted, you get additional things, people, you know, whether it's your boss, whether it's leadership, whether it's growth. Think about what your boss, your company's goals are and make sure that you're solving those problems. It's too easy, again, to get those blinders on and say, look, I'm only focusing on closing X deal or X this. What is your boss's priorities, your manager's priorities? And let me make sure I'm solving those. And I know that's the way that you continue to grow in your career. Continue to think about it a little bit outside of your wheelhouse. Start thinking about that information to the point of getting feedback from your boss. You'll start understanding why they're giving you feedback. I understand where he or she's priorities are. So now I understand why he's giving me this, this feedback. All those things. So the best advice I ever got was think about it that way. Think about what a, a person is looking at and try to continue to solve those problems you'll end up being very successful in your career. Such a great piece of advice, Josh. I think you've uh, wrapped us up on a mic drop moment. Have you enjoyed being on? I loved it. Thanks for the time, Alex. I've, I've enjoyed it. Appreciate the questions. Appreciate some of the insights back. It's uh, been a great time. Absolutely. Really, really happy to have you on. Thank you so much. To anyone out there that's been listening or watching on YouTube, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to share it with a colleague like, comment, share and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please take a moment to leave us a five star review. Until then, we'll see you on the next one.
Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.